from the heart of the Forest City, focusing on the biggest stories in London, this is the Craig Needles Podcast. Now here's your host, Craig Needles. It's the Craig Needles Podcast. It is the Friday Roundtable here at ClassicRock981.com, LondonNewsToday.ca, and on your very favorite podcast app. We thank you for listening, subscribing, all that fun stuff. And because it is the Friday Roundtable, we are joined in studio by an illustrious panel this week. We have uh, uh, AJ Ray with us, who, of course, uh, is, a, is a planning expert, PhD candidate over at Western. Activist Moshe Cox is here, as is the deputy mayor of the city of London, Sean Lewis. Hello, everybody. Thank you for being here. Hello again. Hello. Hello. Uh, let's uh, let's start with the LHSC story from this week, and it was a story that got a lot of people within London Health Science Center pretty upset. Uh, that is when we see significant raises for management, while at the same time we've got wages capped or raises capped for nursing staff, for maintenance staff, the people who are on the front lines. And that combined with the story that just went up at London News today right before we started recording, which is that frontline staff received a $2.50 coupon as a thank you for accreditation this week, which the two things are not officially related, but at the very same time, it's, it's impossible, and people in the hospital told me this, to not notice the timing and be kind of annoyed by it. So what was everyone's thoughts on when we see Jackie Schleifer Taylor getting a 200 plus thousand dollar raise, new job and, and overtime and stuff goes into that. And that's what the board said. Or when we see Carrie Young Ritchie getting a raise of, you know, nearly $75,000. Well, at the same time, nurses are capped to uh, maybe a thousand dollars, depending on who you are. What was your response to that? What, 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 do you, what do you think of that when you see sort of the, the, those numbers laid out that way? Well, the first thing I'm going to say is uh, I've had the opportunity to uh, meet with Jackie, and I find her to be a very, very intelligent, um, good leader for LHSC. Like, I, I think highly of her, uh, and I'm really, really encouraged by her participation and the participation of her team in uh, London's uh, homelessness and housing summits and, and our whole of the community response system. So I want to say that I think she's genuinely changing some things around at LHSC and is showing good leadership. She's an incredibly intelligent woman. That said, the optics of a raise of that size are really, really bad. And I have always been, and I'm sure you could dig up some audio clips, a fan of a public sector CEO salary caps. I know we have to be careful of the brain drain to the U.S., Mm -hmm. Uh, but when we have somebody who is managing a hospital or uh, somebody who's managing, you know, I mean, name the institution, right? Um, making more than uh, the prime minister of the country. Yep. Who's also a public sector employee, uh, different type, but nonetheless, uh, arguably the most important leadership role in the nation. Uh, and they're making double or triple what the prime minister is making. Uh, I see an issue with that. How many employees does so, the City of London have? Just, uh, just uh, how many employees? employees? City of London, uh, a little over three thousand. Oh, okay, so not as big as a hospital, but still, you know, yeah. and Josh Morgan makes about one hundred and forty grand. Um, I and I won't disclose um, because that would be inappropriate um, what our city manager or our deputy city managers make, but it is not what London Health Sciences Center executives are making. Right, yeah. it's not sure. even close. And by the way, you can look that up on the 2022 Sunshine yeah. List if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> Mojde, what are your thoughts on uh, on sort of the way this story has progressed this week? 
Yeah, so I can appreciate the differentiation that's made here with Sean's statements. We're talking about two two things here, yeah. I think. One is how much exec pay is enough pay. Right. And I don't think that conversation should st- – not that we're just starting this conversation, but I, I feel deeply uncomfortable with having this conversation when we have the first black woman in, I think, the mm-hmm. entire country to take on the role that I Dr. Believe, I, yeah, I believe that and is I'm the case. And I'm going to apologize yeah. in advance. I'm going to – I cannot pronounce this last name. Schleifer Taylor. It's a little bit different Taylor. than – yep. I'm so I always want to say Shifley, yeah. but I'm – that's, that's a hockey, hockey brain. Yeah, yeah that's a hockey brain. brain. So. We, we digress, but I, <laughs> yeah. you know, I really try my best to yeah. say this name correctly, but, you know um, – I, 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 I think it's ludicrous to start the conversation here um, at this moment in time. However, uh, well, recognizing, n- number one, that uh, Dr. Schleffler-Taylor had inherited not only a litany of systemic issues, a pandemic, and I think in the history of London Health Sciences, I haven't found a lot of, like I try to do a little digging, who else was in an interim role? Um, Dr. Southwood Taylor was. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure for how long. Yeah. Is this our normal practice and why? So I, I have these questions. I think the optics of that is pretty awful, actually. So, you know, we're talking about two different things. So when we're looking at the level of responsibility that an individual in her role has, um, we have to be looking at the compensation to match that. But However, I, I think in fairness, though, Mojde, this isn't the first time this conversation has come up I around London that. Health Sciences Centre. Right? Yeah. Um, it, it's not, we're not just starting it with Jackie's role. Uh, this this was a conversation around the previous mm-hmm. uh, CEO's role and the previous CEO before that. So uh, this has been a conversation certainly in this community for at least the past three. Um, but I, I also want to say I agree with you very much about the interim position. That has to be a factor here too. You raise an excellent point there. And that she has done an entire systems change to actually address what the, some of the, we don't know what the outcomes of that is, but there are, it is it is proven. So there's that piece. And then the fact that, you know, in 2011, Cliff Nordahl's salary was $1,457,292 uh, and change, right? So yeah. like, l- that's 2011. Yeah. Now he was so running two hospitals, but yes, that, that, that's a lot of cash. And, that, and 2011 dollars, definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and St. Joseph's president and chief Executive uh, Roy Butler received 413 at that time in salary. Oh, sorry, in in 2022 in salaries. Now those two roles are separate. So here's the thing. Uh, you know, I I, I want to wrap it up because so, I want to hear what AJ has to say. I'm so sorry for taking up so much space. Okay. Oh, I'm, I'm loving passionate it. Yeah. about this. Bill 124 is not something that CEOs of hospitals are driving. Number one, that is a Ford issue. That is a conservative Ontario, conservative government decision to cap public sector pay when everyone's really strapped for the output that's required in a time of crisis. So voters in this province need to reflect on that. And this double standard of, um, you know, we we don't want... um, when we're looking at the board chair's response to what was included in in this pay was base salary, performance pay, and accrued vacation. I'm not against anyone getting those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, when we're talking about this, I don't think there is, I'm not having this conversation in this moment. I am right now, but I don't think it's appropriate in this moment. I do think that we need to talk broadly about executive pay. Yes. And I think that the, sh- the business community is shifting their perspectives on that. Um, so I think we do need to have a ratio of what top pay looks like and what lowest paid in an organization looks like. And that's how we can bridge some of this income gap. 
Agreed. I, I agree with that entirely. Yeah. AJ, your thoughts? Yeah, I'm with both these folks on this. It's not about this particular role. It's right. about broadly how we treat uh, top-level pay as well as bottom-level pay in the public service. I also think in Canada, we really struggle with the benefits of public office. There should be benefits beyond just pay. I think, you know, the fact that it, I find it frankly embarrassing that our prime minister travels on a 40-year-old aircraft and doesn't even have an official residence in which to host major world leaders. I find that frankly embarrassing. I also think, you know, it, when we talk about university presidents, for example, uh, this isn't the first time that we've you know, had major issues with executive pay. You'll recall the last president of Western uh, made north of $1.2 million. We now are back down to what I think is a more reasonable compensation level for even an American university president in a Canadian context. And I think this is another problem that we really struggle with is what is the comparator in a 100% public system? What are we comparing ourselves against? And I think perhaps maybe the province needs to step up and set some sort of expectations around different pay classes or pay grades for chief executives and major public uh, third-party organizations like municipalities, universities, school boards, hospitals. Um, and from a Bill 124 perspective, I'm really struggling with the bill because definitely the, the progressive conservatives have shot themselves in the foot way back in 2019. And now they're kind of caught in a catch-22 with the bill. Because if they lift it just for the health sector, you're then all of a sudden going to have ops who come knocking on the door for the rest of the public service mm-hmm. for equivalent raises. And, you know, I haven't looked at the numbers. And I don't know if Ontarians are ready for what that number could look like in regards to the increase in public service sector salaries well, well, if 124 gets left. At full OSS, yeah. yeah. all why, of them. And this is why them. you just don't stop giving out yeah. significant raises for years mm-hmm. at a time because yeah. eventually it's catch-up time. Eventually and the catch-up bill comes time due. gets really expensive, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. And Absolutely. this is the problem yep. is you have to be fair about it. And so I appreciate the, the trap the progressive conservatives laid for themselves. Yeah. And now they're they're reaping the, the, the harm that was done by it. And I think, you know, the courts are probably going to end up ruling in favor of the public service and we're going to end up with a massive bill. And I do hope that once Bill 124 is lifted, that does fix some of the recruitment problems, because I think why our hospital sector is struggling so much is not really executive pay. Yes, the optics of it are terrible, but I also think we're really struggling with a shortage of people in those organizations and everyone's burnt out. And I just I think though it's not just a shortage of people. I think the working conditions have to be looked at too. And, and I think about folks at the hospital in particular. When you've got nurses in an emergency room who are you know perfectly capable and trained and able to deal with uh, patients experiencing a heart attack, a broken bone, a, a, a laceration that requires stitches, all of those things that they've trained for. And then they're, they're having to also be asked to deal with because we closed our psychiatric hospitals. And now they're being asked to deal with mental health cases, uh, addiction situations, overdose situations that they are not as well trained for because mental health is a special field of practice. It's, it's not something that uh, a frontline emergency room nurse or a frontline, even a clerk in the frontline emergency room uh, who often has to bear the brunt of the, the intake and sometimes violent, aggressive situations. You've got other patients' concerns to care about too. And the, the burnout of having all of this dumped on them. It's not just the pay. 
it's not just that we're having a hard time uh, with staffing levels. It's that we've created working conditions that, my goodness, who would want to work there? Yeah. Like, I, I have nothing but the utmost respect, especially for the people in our ERs, because they are the front, front, front lines. And we are asking them to deal with situations that we just have not provided them uh, with the training and, and equipment and resources to deal with. So I think it's not just recruitment. I think we've got to take a serious look at the working conditions. And from a numbers perspective, the thing that boggles my mind the most is the last time the province actually expanded postgraduate medical education and undergraduate nursing seats was in 2004 with the opening of the Northern Ontario School of Medicine. There's not been a single expansion, even though we have arguably uh, had the fastest growing decade in the province's entire history from a population perspective, actually expanded undergraduate and graduate medical seats. And now the province has announced they are going to be opening a new medical school in Brampton, which I think is great. But to be honest, that's just playing politics of building a new hospital for cheap that can be hidden under the university sector budget uh, Mm -hmm. in Brampton. We shouldn't be building just one new academic hospital. We should be building three. We should be expanding every single academic hospital here because we need people that are trained in new specialties and can respond to the new crises that we have on hand. I never even thought of it that way. So that's so yeah. interesting that the, you know, what we're pumping out into the ecosystem is not is we haven't expanded, and not to mention I hate to sound like a broken record every time we sit here and talking about foreign accreditation. If we recognize mm-hmm. yes. nurses uh-huh. from other countries who've come here, doctors, yeah. um, this country wouldn't be dealing with any kind of labor shortage. In fact, that's absolutely fictitious and and I think it's a way to drive cheap temporary foreign workers uh, here and and really drive the quality of any service we try to deliver down. The pro, the, like Labor Minister Monty McNaughton has been talking about what you just said most day quite a bit. I know the federal government's been talking about it quite a bit. Now, talking about it and actually getting real life action are different things. Well, and you also but I hope work. that we are going to get some real life action on it soon. I you know, at, at least it seems to be on the radar. I agree. It, you yeah. do have to resolve though. These are professional colleges that are relatively self-governed. And unfortunately, there's a lot of misconceptions and a lot of biases that are embedded in these organizations that refuse to acknowledge that someone with a medical degree from India or a medical degree from the UK or France or Germany. Nursing degree from Nursing degree from any major uh, country has an academic system that is almost equivalent to ours. Let's not pretend we are some beacon on the top of the hill. Many countries around the world have similar academic standards to us, particularly when it comes to medicine. And I think, unfortunately, there's historical misconceptions about those people's qualifications, and there's bias towards them. And but that's we have to resolve the colleges. That's where the government's got to flex its muscle, exactly. though, too. Yeah. Those, the College of Physicians, the College of, of uh, RCN, Chiropractic, yeah. the, uh, the College of Nurses... None of them have a charter if the government revokes it. Exactly. So while they may be independent of, they exist because the government has chartered them to exist. So if if the government directs them to change their rules, they either play ball or or they have their charter revoked. So the government at some point has to say enough is enough, because I agree with you uh, completely on this foreign accreditation issue. And I remember talking about this as far back as a 2011 federal election and promises of movement going to change. It was, I'm sure it was probably talked about before then, but I, yeah. that one really stuck out in my mind because I know Jack Layton hammered that one home 
over and over on the campaign trail in that election. And we were promised we were going to see changes. Uh, you know, the, the Harper government said, while we're listening to, we're going to make changes. That never happened. Uh, we, we heard promises from the McGuinty and the Wynn Liberals that they were going to make it faster and easier. That never happened. You know, I heard at a, an industry meetings conference yesterday, um, you know, we want to talk about the economic benefit of, of newcomers to the country, even visitors to the country. There was a, an expo where over 600 delegates couldn't even get their visas approved yeah. to attend. Canadian HIV so and AIDS conference. Yeah. we've got a yeah. huge, huge issue with how our government is letting people visit or come and work in this country. Yeah. Our yeah. immigration system is racist. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's broken. It's broken. It, 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 it we is need broken. to just name that our immigration. Because we is, mentioned, like, okay, which countries are we looking at the accreditation from? And, you know, uh, like, are we looking at the pro- pro- proper accreditations for folks that are from India? Because that's about the same as what we're doing here. But we don't let folks from India come over and, and practice medicine. Why is, why, why is India not on the good list? Or there's various African countries, same thing. Like, then why are they not on the good list? Like, it, it, it doesn't take a genius to figure it out, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I, I think that there is a lot of work that needs to be done. On the subject of Bill 124, though, I want to talk about that. And, 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 and what I talked about on the, the podcast this week was I want a hospital executive, someone, anyone, to say, my hospital's been made worse by what's gone on with Bill 24. And, and that might be, maybe I'm asking too much. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm being naive to think that's going to happen. But if I were someone whose wages were being capped by that, I would feel pretty good knowing that, hey, okay, the person who is running this hospital is in my corner here and is willing to say, hey, this is, this is not a good piece of legislation. This is hurting our hospital. That, that, that would change how I would feel about the situation. Again, maybe I'm being pie in the sky by thinking about that's a possi- that, that that's even a possibility. I understand the provincial government can sort of flex its muscle in certain ways, but that's kind of what I, what I would want at the very least. And am I being naive to think that's possible most day? Well, will Ford uh, and his government um, commit to not exerting any consequences yeah. and to that institution? Will will they play nice and not, uh, you know, pull some power play, power move over these folks? I don't believe there's any organizational leader that says I don't want to have a good retention and attraction strategy. Right. Um, if they're at their performance is 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 going to also be based on whether they're recruiting the the kind of talent uh, that it takes to run the institutions they're responsible for. And I think that our LHSC president named that uh, in in the circles that she's rolling in there. People are saying that this is this isn't lending for a system that's going to a help the public and b enhance institutions. So uh, as long if we can get those guarantees, yeah. Craig, I don't yeah. think you're naive at all. Yeah, um, but we won't. We won't, yeah. and we know and that ultimately the there's going to be a power play. It's not something that people love to hear, but the reality is sometimes you get more traction by having that conversation over a coffee in Behind a minister's doors. office, as opposed to telling sending me. out a press release and getting yeah. Craig Needles to have you on the podcast. Right. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. Uh, so sometimes those conversations, I would say, are 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 happening. They're just not getting attention. Yes. Yeah, yes, and that's fair. And the other thing that is kind of hanging over this entire conversation is uh, Bill 124 is in the middle of a court challenge right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, like, the, the, I'm not a lawyer, but I've talked to lawyers who know this stuff. They think that it's just a matter of when the government loses this, not yes. if, it's when. Yeah. So then what happens when that occurs? Because well, that, that, that's when the bill comes due. 
And I'm, I'm going to redirect us to the university and college sector yeah. a bit because this is where I do most of my work on an advocacy front. Um, one of the biggest challenges with Built 124 being lifted is universities and colleges had the 10% tuition cut happen. In real terms, because of inflation, the basic income unit transfer, or it's known as the basic income unit. Yes, students are known as BIUs. They're, they're just treated as numbers and widgets on a spreadsheet. Um, but the government's transfer to universities and colleges in real terms has been cut for decades because it hasn't been increased. And so the universities are facing a real challenge of if 124 gets lifted and faculty unions come knocking, graduate student unions come knocking, staff unions come knocking, there's not really any money in the sector beyond raising international student tuition, which we know is frankly unfair to many international students that are already here. Um, and this is where I think, you know, from my perspective, that, that when and government not having other revenue tools in place for universities to be able to leverage is going to cause a real crisis in our universities and colleges. And, you know, we might even see other Laurentian type situations occur. I don't know if folks read the latest Auditor General's report on four universities that um, are failing to meet key financial performance requirements. But um, I think it's a wake up call for many people of broadly public sector organizations and the financial challenges that they have. Um, to go read those reports and just understand how much we're teetering on the edge here. So from my perspective, like on 124, it's, it's again, it's a really complex problem of it's been capped for so long. We're sitting on this ticking time bomb when it gets lifted and there's not other revenue tools in place, which Sean, I think, you know, the, a comparable would be the development charges change. Um, if there's not those revenue tools in place, what do we do? And at you know, I think point, municipalities have a little bit more revenue tools than a lot of other broader public sector organizations. So. Although most of our revenue tools would be user fees, which are, are not necessarily the, the best approach either. I, I was going to say at some point, it is time for Ontarians and realistically for Canadians to have a grown up discussion about the fact that if we want to, to keep our public services functional at the, the level of quality we expect that we are going to have to pay for them. And it is exactly. maybe time to raise the HST by two cents and start collecting more revenue to transfer to these public services so that we can pay for them. And I, I'm, I'm not going to say, uh, uh, you know, the, the nice thing about being a politician is I'm not an economist. So I can't say whether that two cents will actually <laughs> yeah. provide enough revenue. But it, it, it's an example of it is time to have a discussion about we are going to have to raise taxes a little bit. And why do we still only have our, our upper tax bracket at like $250,000 a year? Where's the half a million or the three quarters of a million dollar tax bracket? So that the people who are earning the most yes. are asked to contribute the most back into society. And, and Proportionate gonna, tax increases is next. Sorry, correct. No, I was just going to say, people are going to be listening to this mm -hmm. and saying, well, Sean, you can raise property taxes. You're the deputy mayor of the city of London. And I will say you can, Sean. But yeah, I understand but property taxes are a lot worse tax than the taxes Property taxes about. are the worst tax to yes. raise because they take into zero account a person's ability to pay. It is just about where they lay their head at night and the value that a, a, an outside agency, the Municipal Property Assessment Corporation, uh, places on the value of that home. So it's not based on my income or Mojde's income or AJ's income and where we live. It is based on just the building where we lay our heads 
and what another agency has put as the value of that property. So it's really, really harmful because it's it's an across-the-board thing. Um, property taxes are the, are the worst option. Heck, I would happily give up as a municipality property taxes altogether tomorrow if the province offset that with an income tax raise that they transferred back to the municipalities. I mean, I also so, would be in support of a land value tax that's right. that was able to recoup the bonanza of gains that many property owners have made just from being able to sit on their properties without actually improving the physical buildings themselves. You know, that I'm a, I'm a Georgist through and through, and I encourage people to go look up Georgism from the 1800s because I think it is something as adults we need to have a conversation about who has gained the most in this country by being able to just buy land at a particular point in time when it was subsidized by the government. Now I feel so like Professor Ray question, has just given me some weekend homework to read. I, I might have. <laughs> there we go. To qu answer your question, then what? When the government loses this charter challenge. Yeah, it's when. Uh, I hope that uh, voters in Ontario don't have collective amnesia over mm -hmm. what happened. Mm -hmm. And that we can actually look towards the masses of advocates to try to reappeal this. Uh, one group being local, and I just want to give a shout out to the London District Labor Council because they have been speaking to this charter challenge with respect to the way that the, the treatment of educators, both you know, QP and, and ETFO and OSSTF workers, as well as uh, as well as the hospital workers. Yeah, yeah. Well, because here's the thing: uh, once the government loses this court case, assuming they do, and I think that's a pretty good assumption based on what we know, uh, there's going to be a lineup of workers that say, "Oh yeah, you know that one percent you gave me? That was illegal. You're gonna have to give me two percent or three percent or whatever it happens to be." Yeah. And then I hope it's the government expensive. forks up yeah. all of the money so that the organizational leaders who this disgusting bill was imposed on then don't have to navigate institutionally how they're going to do this and cut back on what benefits are to the actual public um through public services then it you know it has it has to happen that the government takes full ownership and that voters also hold them accountable and themselves accountable when they go to the polls if they do by the way, and the last thing I'll say on this, because I know we've got some other things we want to talk about. Yeah, but, I want to get to the But budget. when you said <laughs> raising property taxes, AJ, the other thing that I would say is the municipality is going to raise your property taxes every single year because we're not immune to inflationary pressure either. We raise them every year. The question is, because, and we legally have to run a balanced operating budget. Yeah. Um, so the other two levels of the government do have to at some point come to uh, the realization that the money has to come from somewhere. Um, and really, at the end of the day, that's taxes. Uh, speaking of taxes, uh, <laughs> some would argue that the federal government may not have issued enough of those because their deficit is going to be $40 billion this year. Now, there will be some uh, bonuses for families that were paying for groceries, and depends on the size of family, income, and all that stuff, up to $467 for those who uh, need help paying, with, uh, paying for their uh, significant grocery bills. And I can tell you, my kids are only three and five, but the grocery bill has gone up real big at my house. I can't even imagine what's going on at Mo's Day's house. Oh. <laughs> oh. I can't even begin to bring myself to think about it. Yes, there's six of us. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of people. And uh, older than three and five in a lot of cases. That's hey, right. I uh, have zero. <laughs> But boy, when the hockey team shows up, like I want to cover that lock. No doubt. Because it's like a swarm of locusts has descended into my kitchen and then I come back into it and I'm 
having like peanut butter on some crackers because that's all that's left. Uh, <laughs> I think their parents are sending them to my house to eat because the grocery bill at home has gotten to be too much. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about that grocery bill. The federal sure. government trying to help with that. Look, they're, they're getting hurt on, there, there's two issues that the federal government is really kind of getting smoked on if you look at the polling. One is ethics. Two is affordability. They're trying to shore up that affordability portion of that. AJ, do you think they've done a good job of that, or do, do you think that this doesn't really move the needle? No, this budget did not meet the moment. It does not meet the moment that we're in, in the crisis that we are in. Again, we are in a housing crisis. We are in a food security crisis. We are in a health crisis. And this budget is just a few more dollars to take a few more photo ops, to make a few more announcements. And at the end of the day, there's going to be no real outcomes from this. And from my perspective, a GST credit increase will get someone through a month, That's not through a year. Maybe even that. And not even maybe a month if you have more than, you know, one or two kids. Mm -hmm. And from my perspective, this government needed to make some big transformative moves if they wanted to f potentially form next government in, you know, a year or two years, whenever this coalition collapses. Uh, and I think we're... We're in a crisis now because this government has refused to actually meet the moment for Canadians. And I, I can't say much more beyond just where was the housing policies? Where was the food security policies? Where was the funding to Canadians that actually need it? Remember, because I am a single and because I am a student, I'm going to get these credits. I also got the one-time housing benefit top up. I did not need them. I actually donated my one-time housing benefit back to Indwell, and I'm going to be donating my GST credit back to Indwell because that's where the money should be going. And this is the problem. We are having a government that is just firing money out of a cannon, hoping it hits the people that need it, and not thinking about actually targeting those programs. But on the flip side, we have a dental care program, still not yet implemented, that has, in my opinion, gone way too means tested and way too focused and isn't actually going to help the people that need dental care at the end of the day. It's embarrassing that this is a food security measure, this mm -hmm. one time, you know, these one time top ups. Although I do want to say that for families who are really struggling, that is going to be uh, a real godsend yeah. to them. For like, but that, that, that takes care of two grocery shops, Absolutely. maybe three. Yeah, and yep. it's it's better than nothing. Yeah, However, than nothing. Yep. it is embarrassing to think that this was the policy choice that was done. What could they have done differently? Increase the minimum wage uh, to what should be beyond what the living wage is even calculated from 2022 because I don't really think November 2022 because I don't really think that we really factored in how much things have changed between now and then. And then, you know, we, we have to increase social safety nets, EI, all of the social supports across the provinces. Yeah, the EI reform confused me because yeah. it mm -hmm. sounded like the public service had that lined up. Yeah, sorry. And everyone was expecting it to happen. And it's it a failure in government and following through with what they have already started the conversations around. And then the other thing is, is this. So it's embarrassing that we think that the seniors that are retired and on CPP and 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 uh, and uh, OAS, OAS. OAS uh, as well as folks on ODSP, should be able to, should survive off of what is given out right now. It's horrible. If we can. yeah, so if we're not looking at doing that, and to Sean's point, adding a layer to income tax for highest earners in this country, lowering the income tax for the lowest yeah. earners in this country is necessary right now. That is 
policy. That would make a difference. Those are yep. policy decisions that are going to address the affordability crisis, not 400 and something dollars to those who would fall in an unrealistic low income cutoff point um, w- with what we're dealing with today. My pre- my spouse and I say we, we go on this sort of weekly, sometimes bi-weekly adventure, date day, day night, date night, where we point at items at the grocery store and talk about the price that they used to be. And, and, and we're not struggling that bad, but it, we were hit with sudden job loss in the family. We had to rejig over the last few months. Yeah, and I know what that, that feels like. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it, it, this is a real, this is a real talk moment where, you know, you, when you yeah. have to pivot as a family and you have young children, these one-time bonuses, it, it helps, but is it a, is it, is it a policy? It's embarrassing to think that this is a policy decision to address something as, as, uh, Absurd. Well, not uh, not absurd, but as as pressing as the affordability crisis. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, again, uh, like I said about the taxes, and I know you picked up on that, Mojde. Yeah. The the funding has to come from somewhere, and if we are going, this budget is, is a do nothing budget, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. It's a status quo budget. Uh, listen, I I will say, and and I mean this. I give the federal government credit where it's due, and and I will say, uh, from a City of London perspective, we appreciate uh, the rapid housing dollars that have flowed to this community to get buildings built. Uh, And the one on Baseline is built uh, and occupied the one on Thompson Road. I believe people are going to start moving in as early as next week. Um, The one on Elm Street uh, is underway. I will say, um, uh, spoiler alert, um, there's a great project that's coming up in Ward 2 that we'll see hopefully sometime this year that's going to look at more affordable housing options including perhaps some opportunities for lower income families to get into a rent to own program but Sean um, I remember people at public meetings saying you would never accept <clears throat> something like that in ward 2 um here we are yeah here we are right <laughs> yeah. um we are uh absolutely um there there's some great things that are coming and the rapid housing dollars have come surprisingly from the federal government because i'm used to the federal government announcing the funding's coming announcing the funding's coming announcing the funding's coming but it feels like the funding's never coming the funding's actually been delivered on time on schedule and and we've been able to get shovels in the ground Mm. but there wasn't enough and there's still not enough to address the housing crisis uh in the city and and across this province and across this country um so that's that's a big issue for me um the gst credit yes it is going to be a godsend for those who are struggling the most. Absolutely. No doubt about it. But it's going to disappear very quickly. Yeah. And people are going to be right back at square one. They're going to be right back to struggling because that money can only stretch so far. Um, there's there's other affordability measures that the federal government has been promising for a long time too. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we would all agree that in this day and age... Um, access to the digital reality of our world is necessary how long have we been hearing we're going to get tough on the price gouging <laughs> on uh, internet providers mm-hmm. um, and meanwhile cell phone providers I, same I, thing again, and meanwhile um, we just approved we're talking about budget <laughs> investing right yeah. investments yeah. Yeah. in the budget okay so 13.6 percent increase did you know between 2020 and 2021 was what we had increased in our budget. That's uh, total spending? For, no, no. Oh. Sorry, in just defense. Oh. Military yeah. and defense budget. So tell me, yeah. there are people on the streets dying, okay, for reasons that we can control. 
There are people who are hungry when we have enough food to feed everyone. The government of Canada is choosing to spend $26.45 billion, which is about the same as 2023. Year over year, it's stayed relatively the same since the big jump of 13%. Why? You want to know where the money can come from to help people struggling and literally dying on the streets? I would like to have a justification of why we need this kind of spending for military spending, and I would like to have that answer well, at some point from someone. What I will say government. is, I I don't think it's fair to point at the defense budget because it has been cut and cut and cut for decades, and we are now at a point in which our armed forces do not even have the basic tools to be operationally ready to deal with natural disasters, even. And this is where. Uh, the federal liberals did it to themselves. That increase that happened is because they delayed the decision on the F-35, the cost tripled, and then they decided to go ahead with it. Now, does Canada need F-35s? I'm going to leave the defense policy experts to discuss that and figure out whether or not we do need that protection or do we need, just need to accept planes. Do we just need to accept that the U.S. is better at protecting our airspace in the north and that we should just operate civil defense-only aircraft? That's a question that I think we need to have as adults. Um, but from another perspective, you know, Mojea, I think where where is treating this as a crisis? Where is perhaps calling in the armed forces and our civil engineers like the U.S. did to build housing, to build housing for people? Where is the care and concern being provided that this is a national em emergency? And this is my problem. The rapid housing dollar program to me, that's just a boutique program that's helping get a couple projects built faster. Yes, it seems to be working, and I think it's because they let CMHC run it and not let part of the other government run it. But honestly, I think it's, it's best when it's a drop in the like bucket. CMHC and the municipalities work on this stuff and get out of our way. Um, you you mentioned the defense budget maybe not necessarily being a target. I'll tell you one spot where I would like to see us um, have a mature conversation about how many hundreds of millions is the government spending on advertising alone to tell us oh, what a great job it's doing i know um deliver all there's, there's some money we 101 free up. um another um was it um and if somebody's got the number and can correct me if i'm wrong but there was another like billion dollar expense in the budget for the phoenix pay system yeah i have I not been a federal employee <laughs> since 2018 and that pay system was a train wreck then That's we're right. 2023 and they still haven't fixed that thing how much more money are we going to dump into that? Maybe we need to go back to hiring some human beings to do the payroll processing and get it fixed yeah. just that way and create some jobs because clearly the, the software that they've purchased at a ridiculous price can't get the job done. So there's a whole bunch of bad decisions reflected in this budget that there, there's money available if we cut it from some really idiotic spending areas and the the, the self-promotion advertising uh the phoenix pay system boondoggle you know there there are spots where there is waste to be cut out of this budget and be directed into programs that we actually need um and i would say something that mojdi raised that i would be a thousand percent supportive of and think it should be one of our top priorities raising the cpp oh. and oas payments for our seniors who are just at their breaking point in terms of making ends meet even if you're lucky enough to be in a house where you worked all your life and you were able to pay off your mortgage that cpp and oas is getting spread so thin just paying for groceries and the utility bill i know seniors are right back to where they were cutting prescriptions in half to make yeah. them last so that they can get groceries. And I think we, ODSP is frankly an embarrassment. Our, how we are treating people with disabilities is embarrassing to this country. And I think in 
probably my grandchildren will look back at this time and be apologizing in the House of Commons for committing atrocities during this time, especially with the assisted dying legislation that was mm -hmm. introduced by this government and the opening up and not responding and pushing back on the courts and opening that up. And the number of cases that we've heard about now of now, will people say, with disabilities choosing that I think it's important path. to hold the right level of government to account, though, and the federal yeah. government does not control the ODSP rates. That is the no, provincial government. No, they don't. And so I the can't, province needs to step up there, Yeah, we, sure. we can't expect the federal government to address ODSP rates in its budget. That's the province's job. But, but, the, but the point the, stands the assisted, that... The assisted death of... <clears throat> and like the essential... Like, and we've seen the stories, like someone going to the government saying, hey, I'm having a real problem. And the response of the federal government being, have you considered assisted suicide? Like... Yeah. The, well, and, and that's exactly like, the problem of my, my how friend, are we treating those... And I think... Who, if we just provided a basic living income to you, would okay. be in such a better position. And I know, I think everyone in this room knows uh, my, my friend, Dr. Jeff Preston, and I was talking with Dr. Preston on the radio five years ago about when this legislation first came out, Jeff was saying, what we're going to have happen here is people with disabilities are going to be sort of like told like, hey, suicide's an option for you and getting the pamphlet essentially. And Jeff was right. Yeah. Jeff called it. He nailed it. It's disgusting. Yeah, I it's mean, pretty bad. One, picking up on Sean's idea of yeah. this, this but uh, living wage and, and also the basic income. And I think this ties into the food security as well. When you look at the GST credits and who gets GST credits, I mean, for me, I get about $81 every four months uh, from the government. Right. It's a nice little bonus check. Sure. I normally toss it in my investments or I donate it to a local community organization. There's probably hundreds of thousands of Canadians like me that get very little out of that GST credit, but it costs a lot to administer that program. And I think we need to have a conversation about how we deliver credits. And here's a crazy idea for you. What if we were to walk back those GST credits and instead pay people who are way below the income level that is reasonably livable, a larger credit, a monthly credit of a thousand or $1,500 a month. And I imagine if someone smarter AJ, than me ran those numbers, like basic income program. That is the basic income program, but it's not a basic income for everyone. It's a basic income program for the people that need it the most. That's it. That is what we need. And key key to what you had said is basing that low income cutoff is something that is reasonable, a number mm -hmm. that is reasonable and rational. Yes, yeah. it's not the case right now. No, no. Uh, we could talk about this for hours more, but AJ, you've got places to be and we've got I, things to do. I said people. I was going to have yeah. you out of here three minutes ago. So <laughs> we got to wrap up the uh, the Friday roundtable here. Thank you very much to, to Sean Lewis, Moshe Cox, and AJ Ray for coming in and chatting with us today. Thanks to all of you for listening, downloading, subscribing to, and reviewing the Craig Needles podcast on your podcast app of choice, or of course at classicrock981.com and londonnewstoday.ca. The Craig Needles podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. 